But it's good to be with you guys. It's, it's an honor to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. Um, we're going to continue, obviously, in our series in 1 Corinthians called Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. Uh, last week in the previous section, chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, uh, Paul began to teach the Corinthians about true wisdom. Uh, they foolishly thought they could find true wisdom at the Acropolis among the eloquent pagan philosophers. And in response to that, Paul describes the character of true wisdom by laying out some of true wisdom's key traits. Uh, firstly, true wisdom is imparted by God through the apostles and other legitimate true preacher teachers in the church. Uh, it will not be found among or obtained through pagan philosophers, secular teachers, or any other earthly source. Um, it is imparted to the mature those whose faith is resting entirely upon the power of God as represented in Christ crucified. So that was the first thing about the first trait we learned. Secondly, true wisdom is not derived from any past, present, or future age, nor does it come from the earthly rulers of these ages. It has no fountainhead here on earth. It comes from above. Its fountainhead is God in heaven. And then thirdly, true wisdom is a concealed mystery that God predestined to reveal to his chosen people for their glory. Um, it is hidden from earthly rulers, religious rulers, and spiritual rulers, uh, such as the devil and the demons. And it is also hidden from unbelievers in general. So these are the things that we focused on last week. We studied these traits of true wisdom. In the next section, Paul continues his teaching on true wisdom and this time he describes how it is revealed to God's chosen people and why it does, in fact, remain hidden from all others. Now, we did touch on some of that last week, but now we actually get into the meat of the text where he really describes this. Uh, if you'd be so kind as to please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, our text for this morning will be verses 10 to 16. Uh, last week I gave you a C. And today I will give you two more as we wrap up the section on true wisdom. I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we humbly acknowledge your power and our weakness. Father, without your power through the Holy Spirit, in whom we just sang about, uh, we're not going to be able to comprehend this text. We're not going to be able to comprehend its spiritual implications or applications it, it's all a work of the Spirit, and so that, that's why we sang about the Spirit in, in such a kind of an invitational way. We know He's here with us. We don't have, have to ask Him to come into the building, but, but we do want to humble ourselves and acknowledge our weakness and the Spirit's strength. And so through the song, we were inviting Him to work in our lives. And the fact of the matter is, is that you are God, and you'll work in our lives whether we invite that or not. But we still want to have that kind of heart and disposition toward you. Please we ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would work in us today as we unpack your word, and ultimately, we pray that you would be glorified during this time. Teach us from your word. May we be studious and quiet and, and not distracted. If we're note-takers, help us to take notes. If we take mental notes, help us to do that, but help us to, to hear and believe and apply the truths of Scripture for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we can pick up where we left off last week, look at our second C, 
And that is the communicator of true wisdom, the communicator of true wisdom. And we see this in verses 10 to 13. We'll pick it up at verse 10. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians in the very next line. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So what Paul is essentially beginning to teach the Corinthians and us this morning through, obviously, the Holy Spirit is that the first thing we want to note is that the Holy Spirit is the Trinity's agent for communication. The Holy Spirit is the Trinity's agent for communication or of communication. And the first step of his communication of true wisdom, it would be what we call revelation. It would be called what we call revelation. Um, there, there is other things like illumination and regeneration and these things, but when the Holy Spirit communicates God's truth to someone, uh, like the apostles, it is in a revelatory way. So it's revelation. When Paul wrote, God has revealed to us, he was referring specifically to himself and to the other apostles. In other words, Paul and the other apostles were the the prime recipients and really the only recipients of God's revelatory truth. When, when, when we come to understand the truth of God's word, it's not revelation to us, it's illumination. Revelation is the initial impartation of God's true wisdom. And it went to the guys that wrote the actual book, the human authors behind this. Obviously, they're inspired by the Spirit, but... So revelation is not something that we receive today, although there's a great many Christians that are under the, uh, the false idea that they're still receiving revelation. We're not receiving any more revelation. It is complete. It is fulfilled. These 66 books are the manifestation of God's full revelation to sinners such as us. And so revelation is what we're looking at firstly, and the Trinity uh, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the, 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 the member of the Godhead who gives revelation, and he gave it to the apostles and a few others. It's going to no one else. Um, the apostles, in particular, Paul and the other apostles, were the initial or the main recipients of true wisdom via revelation through the Holy Spirit. Just note that. It was revealed to them, not to others. And it is through what we call inspiration, they wrote down what was revealed to them. So you have revelation and you have inspiration. God has used, if you know anything about the Old Testament in particular, and even in the New Testament, you know this to be true. And that is the fact that God has used angels for a great many amazing tasks, right? And so often messengers are bringing some, not necessarily revelation, but some kind of message to people. They are by definition, messengers. But God did not entrust New Testament revelation to angels. He didn't do that. Um, he did not do that at all. These things were revealed to men through the Holy Spirit, not to angels. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they recorded these things for us. So it's very important for us to understand this. And I think it has something to do with just the importance of Christ crucified. It's not that the angels couldn't handle something like that, but it's just, it's just not something that God chose to reveal to us through an angel, but through apostles. 
which I think is very interesting. And maybe it's the heightened importance of the matter or the subject. I don't know. There's no rationale given. But that's the way, and that's the course by which it comes to us. These things were revealed to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. And, and through inspiration, they wrote these things down, which ultimately means that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. How many of you have heard the argument today, well, I don't want to read the Bible because it's just a book written by men, right? That's an argument that the atheist or the non-Christian makes against our Bibles. And they say, well, it's just, it's just written down by men, and so therefore, why would I want to listen to other men? It's like, well, you're obviously listening to other men to get your marching orders, so I don't know if, if this was literally written by men. You're getting your marching orders from Darwin and others. You don't seem to have a problem with that, but you do have a problem with this. But the fact of the matter is, this is not man's book. This was not written or penned by men. They were simply the vessel by which the inspiration of the Holy Spirit worked through to record these things. So, so ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. And since the Holy Spirit is God, God is the author of of scripture it's very important that we understand this and this is why and i say that because a lot of people get it wrong even in the church but this is why the scripture or the bible calls scripture what in second timothy 3 a god breathed god breathed out his word through the holy spirit and under the inspiration men wrote it down the Holy Spirit inspired many human agents to write these things down. Revelation 1, 19. That's where John is in, under the, the power of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> inspired by the Spirit to record what he's being told to record in that very first chapter of, of Revelation. So even though you have human instruments that are involved in the recording of it, the Bible is still very much entirely the word of God. God. Now, why God chose to do it that way, that's, that's his prerogative, that's his providence, that's his will. I like what 2 Peter 1.21 says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. You know, you had human prophets speaking the word of God to Israel and to others, but, but what Peter is telling us here is that these prophecies that the prophets were given were not their own. They were not their own. They, they were not produced by them or by their will or by their intelligence or by their discernment on how far off the nation is and I need to say something. He says this, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is probably one of the best verses for divine inspiration, for God's authorship of, of Scripture. So it's important that we understand that when we read the Bible, we are not reading the words of man. We are reading the word of God. This is massive because if it's just the word of men, then it bears zero authority. And it's also going to be imperfect, chock full of errors. It wouldn't be dependable. It wouldn't be trustworthy. Why would we bother? Amen? Why would we? Uh, we, we, we are erroneous in our writings. We are erroneous in our hearts. The, the heart of man is deceitful above all else. And so we can't depend on what men write. Now, if a man writes something that is just like Scripture, then it's safe. And this is why we like our, our favorite theologians and all that. But the moment a man deviates away from the truths of Scripture, that's chaff, worthless. But the Scripture is the Word of God. It is God-breathed. It is 
authoritative. When we read the Bible, we are not reading man's wisdom or worldly wisdom. We are reading the true wisdom of God. Therefore, the Bible is perfect, Psalm 1830. It is everlasting, Isaiah 40, verse 8. It is alive, active, and penetrating, Hebrews 4.12, one of my favorite verses. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, which means mature, that he or she would be equipped for every good Work. That's a combination of verses 2 Tim 3.16b, and then we add verse 17 to that. Now, as a member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God perfectly. That's what Paul wrote here. The phrase, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, does not mean that the Holy Spirit must search and learn. That's not what it means. It's what it sounds like, and that's just the way that it's rendered in the English, but that's not the actual meaning, because if that's the meaning, then we now know the Holy Spirit is not God because he is not omniscient and does not know all things. The Bible teaches clearly that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead, a member of the Trinity. He is God as the Father is God, as the Son is God. Therefore, he knows all things as well. Don't be persuaded to think that he has to search and learn. He already knows all things. There is nothing that the Holy Spirit can learn or can search out in a technical or literal sense. He knows the depths of God already. Why? Because he is God. God knows himself better than anyone else. So don't fall into the trap there on some awkward English rendering. He knows it all. And when the Holy Spirit searches... He is not searching to learn. He is searching to rather expose and convict. Okay, he searches our innermost being, not for the purpose of gathering information or intel, but so that we would know that nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing is hidden from God's sight in general, Hebrews 4.13. He does search our hearts and test our minds, but it's not because he doesn't know what's there. He just does it. But I think it's more of a precautionary statement for us. Know that what's here and what's here is known by God. He has the omnipotent power to search out and to see what is hidden, your thoughts, what's buried in your heart. That, I think, is, is the meaning of that when, when it talks about searching and, 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 and finding, when the Holy Spirit does that. And he does this, he searches our hearts and tests our minds for the purpose of this, to give every man and woman, of course, according to their ways, according to the fruit of their deeds, Jeremiah 17, 10. So that's the first verse. Let's move to verse 11. Paul continues by saying, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So what Paul's actually doing here is he's just using logic. And I love the fact that the Bible is incredibly logic. And its logic is always very sound. It's unlike man's logic, which sometimes hits a brick wall. I love this verse. Paul explains why the Spirit can search out the depths of God. He uses an illustration from human experience to make the case. I love the fact that the Bible is not only logical, but it's very relatable. And that's why there's human examples here. 
Now think about what he's saying. Our thoughts as human beings, they are discernible to our own spirits, right? For we can uh, reflect on and recognize our own thoughts. Proverbs 20, verse 27. Other people, however, that are on the outside of us, even those whom we're in relationship with, they do not know for certain what we are thinking unless we disclose our thoughts to them, right? How many times have your spouse said, i just like to know what's going through your mind, right? And there is something going through your mind. And if you reveal it at that very moment, you will probably be in your jammies on the couch. Therefore, you lie, right? You don't want to expose what you're actually thinking in those moments. This can happen in any sort of context. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it's good. It is not right. It is not good to conceal what's actually there. But for the most part, all people can do is analyze our behavior and what we're saying. But they don't really know what's going on in here. Now, I've been married for 24 years, going on 25 here. And my wife has such powerful discernment. She's in the other room, I think. So I can say these things. It's in the stream. Oh, Lord, help me. But she even knows what I'm thinking most times. And of course, I always deny that in that moment. That's not at all what I'm thinking while walking away going, that is exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> How many of you have done that, right? She says, you know what? I know what you're thinking right now, pal. You know, and I'm like, first of all, I'm not a little kid. Don't talk to me like that. She really does have me pinned down. But you don't even know what you're talking about, right? This is what we do. This is the game we play. Point being, sometimes thoughts don't line up with the actions. And the person on the outside doesn't really know what's going through our mind, but we do. We know our hidden thoughts. We know our hidden motives. And sometimes we can't detect what's driving us. We have patterns in our lives of dysfunction that have been built over the years through the mistreatment of others or whatever it is. There's just stuff that's happened to us. And sometimes we're operating at a deeper level and we can't really discern why we're doing things the way we're doing them or why we're thinking the way we're thinking. But in a general way, right, in a general way, we know what's going on in our thoughts, while the person we're speaking to doesn't necessarily know that. They just hear what we're saying, and what we're saying might be completely different than what we're thinking. And sometimes we do that just to be polite. So, and that, that is kind of an argument that, that Paul is making here. Other people, they can't, they don't know what's going on in our minds. And then similarly, the things of God, God's thoughts, God's wisdom, they are completely inaccessible to us unless God reveals to us what he is actually thinking. And it's only the Spirit of God, as Paul calls the Holy Spirit here, it's only the Spirit of God that knows the actual thoughts of God. Therefore, he alone is able to reveal the thoughts of God and the depths of God to us. So in, 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 in a, we know our thoughts the person on the other side of the desk doesn't know our thoughts. We know them, but they don't. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit is the only one who knows the thoughts of God because he's God. Therefore, he must reveal the thoughts of God to us. And we would have to reveal our thoughts to someone so we could have clarity with them if they're wondering what we're actually thinking. Fallen, unregenerate people, um, they think they know the thoughts and ways of God on any given subject. This is a big thing today. People are always commenting on this and they think, and the funny thing is, is that as they're espousing or espousing their views, you're sitting there listening to them going, that is not at all the way, that's not the way the mind of God works because we, we're familiar with scripture. We know what the scripture says, but people are always playing this game thinking that they know 
what God would approve of, what he would disapprove of, and therefore they calibrate their lives in accordance with their own feeble understanding while totally missing the mark. And I would just simply say that, that unregenerate people who do this, they are just sorely mistaken. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, and this is God speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we can't even pretend to begin to, to just to, to even try to describe how we would understand, especially the unregenerate man, how we would understand the mind of God, unless the mind of God is revealed to us. We, we don't have a spiritual, mental, emotional, any kind of physical capacity to discern the thoughts of God apart from the Spirit of God. It's just not going to happen. And today, people, countless people are pretending to know what is in God's thought. God is perfectly fine with my homosexual marriage. This is a big prevailing thought today. And, and obviously when we hear that, it, it breaks our hearts because the person does not understand the mind and thoughts of God because God has made his thoughts and mind very clear on that subject. Now, I don't want to pick on homosexual marriage. I'm giving you an example. <clears throat> his thoughts are not our thoughts. The only way we can gain understanding is through the Spirit. And unregenerate people do not have the spirit. So they have no way to know, discern, comprehend, understand the actual thoughts of God. They are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins in which they walk. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And they cannot discern spiritual things such as the thoughts and ways of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 down in verse 14. In fact, they not only not know the thoughts of God, they're carnal minds, and the mind is the seat of the thoughts. The mind is the, is, is the factory of all thinking. It's so bad for the unregenerate because their carnal minds are actually at enmity with God, Romans 8, 7. So not only do they not know the thoughts of God, their minds are hostile toward the thoughts of God. So it, it's really a dangerous game to play to pretend or to think that we know the thoughts of God while we still are not being regenerated in all these things from the Spirit. And there is, of course, a way that seems right to man. Amen? They may even boast about their, you know, so-called spiritual knowledge and wisdom. How many times have you heard this? Well, I'm, I'm not into Jesus. I'm not into this. I'm not even a Buddhist or anything, but I'm a spiritual person. Right? That, that is a way that seems right to the carnal, unregenerate man. And yet it says this in the same line, but in the end, that kind of rightness in your mind, that kind of mindset and thinking, it leads to life? No, death. It leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12, and obviously Proverbs 16, 25. Big point being, as man knows and reveals his own thoughts, the Holy Spirit knows and reveals the thoughts of God. I'm the only one that can reveal my actual thoughts to my wife, and the Holy Spirit is the only one who can reveal the actual thoughts of God to a person. If the Holy Spirit isn't active in power, illuminating, regenerating, doing those initial works to get that person up to par, to give them a new life and a new brain and all that, it's not happening. It's just not happening. What they know is carnal. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is the only communicator of true divine wisdom. 
He is the possessor and the presenter of the depths of God. That's Paul's precise point in verse 11. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The reason why the apostles and believers in general know true wisdom is now explained. They have received the Holy Spirit who discloses the things of God to them. Okay, that's, that's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 12. When Paul speaks of receiving not the spirit of the world, the reference could be to demonic beings, but it is more likely rhetorical as in the phrases of like spirit of slavery in Romans 8.15 and spirit of fear in 2 Tim 1.7. The purpose of the gift of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2.8, is that believers should understand what God has granted in his grace to them. Believers do indeed possess true wisdom, but the true wisdom they enjoy that helps them frame their lives and make decisions and helps them in their walk, helps them uh, give counsel to others, the, the true wisdom they enjoy and employ, it cannot be in any way ascribed to their own intelligence, nor can it be applied to the world around them. Again, Paul is, is kind of banging on that point that you want to go to the Acropolis to get true wisdom from carnal fallen men. It's not happening. They do not have it. You can't find it anywhere. Go listen to Apollos' sermons. They're on YouTube. Back then, I don't know what it was called, but he's the one. He's the instrument that is imparting through the Holy Spirit true wisdom. Because he is tethered to me through the Spirit, and I am speaking through him. You're not going to find it anywhere else. It is a granted thing. It will not be discovered apart from the Holy Spirit, only in and through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's task, and he has many, but one in particular, and I think it's one of the most important, is to what? Help us understand the things freely given to us by God, as Paul says right there. The Holy Spirit is called our helper, our tutor, our reminder, John 14, 26. He illuminates, he enlightens us as he guides us into all the truth, John 16, 13. He also sanctifies us with the word of God, which means to conform us to the image of Christ, 1 Timothy 4, 5. So very clearly in verse 12, it is the purpose of the Spirit to help us comprehend, understand, and apply all of the good graces God has imparted to us in his word. Verse 13, he says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. There's another attack on the Acropolis. Don't go to the Acropolis. They should rename it the Acropolis because that's what it was. Sorry, that maybe was a little bit crude for you, but that's what comes to my mind when I think of it. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom because it's absolute chaff and rubbish, but taught by the Spirit. Taught by the Spirit, not by men, by the Spirit. Paul's statement here recalls what he argued back in verse 4. His what? Speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
In other words, his teaching was not based on human wisdom, nor was it the result of human invention. It was taught by the Holy Spirit through him, through the other, uh, other apostles, and through faithful teachers such as Apollos, and, and pretty much every faithful teacher in succession coming after them. R.C. Sproul and Calvin and just a, you know, C.S. Lewis, a great many others. When, uh, when a real preacher or a true preacher teacher exposits the word of God, we hear the sound of his voice, but it is the Holy Spirit who is instructing us. If we comprehend what we hear, if we can understand what we are hearing at even a, a spiritual level, we comprehend it not just as clear speech, but in a spiritual sense, we get it, we understand it, we want to live that, we want to apply it. You need to understand that it's not because the preacher is a great communicator. One of the things that really bothers me about churches today is that they put such a high emphasis and value on really, really good communication. Right? They actually, when they look for a ministering pastor to hire, for a senior pastor to just a teaching position, one of the, the, the big check boxes is excellent communication. I've actually witnessed this. Now, I think we would all agree that good communication is important. You want the person to be articulate and to be clear. But I think there's, there's more emphasis put on that clarity and that quality of communication over content. Therefore, you get extremely talented communicators that are a, a, an inch deep and a mile wide. They're very, very shallow. In fact, in some of the biggest churches in America, the communicators would be off the charts in communication ability. But their, their, their theological content is vacuous. You listen and you go, okay, that, that was very clear and I like the stories he used. I'm walking out with nothing now, thank you, because there was no substance, there was no meat, there was no real exposition. And churches do this today. What's our number one thing? Got to be a really good communicator. And you get down to about 10, it's like, okay, what about content? Yeah, throw some of that in there. Okay, content to me should be just a, a, above communication. I mean, how many of you have sat before boring preachers? If you say we're doing it now, I will stay up here and cry. But how many of you have done that? Now, it's difficult to sit through a very non-dynamic, boring monotone preacher. I get it. But let me tell you something right now. If the content is good, I will sit and endure it. Maybe for years, right? Maybe for years. Content, that's where it's at. And I'm not talking about the content of his speech. I'm talking about this content right here. That what he's saying lines up with all of scripture because scripture is self-affirming. That it lines up with 2,000 years of church orthodoxy. We have a history. We have doctrines that we've always believed. Some of them have been lost, but they were regained during the Reformation. And so content is, is very, very important. It is very important. It is what's on my mind more than good, clear communication, always. And, and the point being that if, if these things are good, if the content is good and spiritually discernible, and you understand what is being said, and, and it, it, it kind of wakes you up, and you feel like it's blowing wind into your sails, and the Holy Spirit is working, that is not because you're sitting in front of a good communicator. That is because the Holy Spirit is working in you. The Holy Spirit is illuminating you, applying the truth to you. Now, I don't think it's 
necessarily wrong to compliment a preaching pastor, but don't give him credit for things that are not his works. Thank him for being faithful to the word, and I'd probably stop there. And now you give all the rest of the praise and the glory to the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, I don't care how talented the guy in the pulpit is. I don't care how good of an expositor he is. And, and we have a, a long church history of some of the greatest expositors, especially the Reformed guys. We have tons of them. And so much credit is given to our theological system and to our favorite preachers. The Holy Spirit deserves this praise because without him, you have nothing. You do not comprehend at a spiritual level. You do not walk out as a regenerated, illuminated um, you, are, you are not transformed. It is the work and ministry of the Spirit, and it's so sad that all this praise is given to men. It is. The Holy Spirit is... is, is I remember reading a book years ago. Years ago, it was called The Forgotten God. And the whole book was about the Holy Spirit because he is seemingly forgotten about in churches. In some churches, he's all they talk about, which is an equal wrong issue. But this is a work of the Spirit. He is granting to us. He is imparting to us. It is not me. When I, when I act on my own and do my own things, I do not bring about any goodness or anything that's valuable. I don't. It's only by Christ in me that anything good comes through me. That's it. And this is, the same is true for you. The same is true for you. It's not because we're good communicators. It's because the Holy Spirit is opening our ears. He is illuminating our minds with the word of God or to the word of God. I know this to be so true. and I know it's biblical. I don't have to use my own example. But how do I go from a guy who is, is lost in sin, starting to drink heavily again, you know, threatening to basically destroy his family and his young children? I mean, it's just a, a heartbreaking thing that I was doing. And how do I go from sitting in church and, and hearing sermons and going, this is rubbish. Look at these idiots with their hands up. This is the stupidest thing in the world. To the very next Saturday, our God is an awesome God. People are looking at me like, this guy's psycho. How, how, do I, how do I make that transition? It wasn't me. It was the Spirit of God in me. He regenerated me, gave me a new heart changed my mind, gave me a new value system. All of a sudden, I valued holiness in these things. I tell the story of how I threw away 300 DVDs, Pulp Fiction and all this stuff didn't belong in my house. My sister-in-law went and dug them all out because she'd been a Christian for 25 years, and she's like, well, I have liberty. And I'm like, well, some of those things are still toxic. But I threw away all this stuff because I was under such heavy conviction. And, and I'm kind of saddened by that because I, I feel like for me personally, I'm just being transparent with you, you would think that over the years that conviction with all this study and, and growing in the Lord that it, that, that it would just keep increasing and I would get to the point where maybe I'd be a monk in the Alps. But in, in some ways, it, it's just like as I, as I comprehend grace more, but then sometimes I make these compromises where I don't have that same level, level of conviction over things that I ought not put before the windows of my soul. Like when I was first saved, it was just crazy. Like if I heard somebody cussing, hey, stop that. Right? I mean, I was terrible to be around too because people were like, I don't even, 
I don't even know what you're talking about. You just, you just said something that is totally inappropriate. We're construction workers, Phil. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Forgot. We're sailors. You got more problems than profanity if you're a sailor. Oh, I'm just kidding if you were in the Navy. Um, this, is, this, is, this is horrible. I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. I got, I got to bring myself out. I see Alice in Wonderland down there. So point being that when I was first saved, it, there's no way that I had anything to do with that. I would say absolutely I responded in faith and repentance, but not before those gifts were given to me, not before my heart was, was changed, not before I was given a desire for the things of God. Prior to that, I had no pulse for God, no desire for God. I thought it was all stupid and rubbish. This is the Spirit of God. And Rick Countryman, I would say back then, he was a very, very powerful preacher, but it's only because the Holy Spirit was working powerfully through him, working powerfully through him. The Holy Spirit, he interprets spiritual truths, Paul says, to those who are spiritual. Who is spiritual? It is those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about believers. Ezekiel 36, 27 and Romans 8, 9. We see a touch of that there. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. I think it was a, a number of years ago. I don't know how long ago it was, but I remember um, R.C. Sproul tells the story and, and someone in the congregation wanted to pay him a, a really nice compliment, right? And they came up to him and it was just a, a, an elderly little old lady, a little sweetheart, you know, she's saved by the grace of God. And, and she comes up and she just tells him, I really like the way you make the Bible come to life, right? Now, half the pulpiteers in, in the country would just love to run with that compliment. But R.C. Sproul, in total mercy, and total grace, said, Dear, I don't make the word of God alive. It makes me alive. What a great correction, right? And then he said, leave the church and never come back. No, he didn't do that. I'm kidding. This is literally how he responded. It's not me. The Bible, I don't animate the Bible. The Bible animates me, right? Because it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Cutting right through the marrow, right? To the conscience. Hebrews 4.12, again, my, one of my favorite verses. He was telling her, man, this is the work of the Spirit. It is the work of God's word, because God's word is living and active. And he did say, but there are a great deep many preachers out there that make the word of God seem dead. And I thought that was pretty funny for him to say that. Uh, and it, 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 you can be very boring. Why, why doesn't the word of God animate our preachers? We're talking about the word of God. It should enliven and waken and, and just animate us. But with limits because a fully animated Phil is very dangerous. But do we agree, though? It animates us. It gives me life. It, 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 it is with the Spirit working in me. It is why I come down here just about every Sunday to do this. It is why this task of sermon prep and sermon um, presentation never gets old. It never gets old. I'm like Hosea, my bones burn with it. I just have to declare it. And that is not because of Phil, because I know the real Phil. I know who I am. Lazy, complacent, apathetic at times, sarcastic most of the time. Amen, right, Keith? Right, Keith's like, that's me. Amen, finally convicted, right? This is the work of the Spirit, therefore the praise. Should go to whom? Come on. 
That's right. That is right. It is the Holy Spirit that is doing this work. It is his work alone. I would simply say this. He alone visits the valley of dry bones and breathes new life into spiritually dead people. Ezekiel 37, 4 to 6. Amen? He is the one that puts flesh on our dead spiritual bones. He is the one that raises us to life in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through the Father. Let's move to our third and final C. So we just talked about the communicator of true wisdom. Now we're going to talk about the complication of true wisdom. We see this in the rest of the text, the rest of the chapter, verses 14 to 16. We'll start at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Stop there. Okay, so... Let me just be clear here. When I say the complication of true wisdom, I am not implying, inferring, or, or, or saying at all that true wisdom actually has any complications. It does not. It comes from God. We see it in his word. It is perfect. It is pure. But there are or is a complication that is associated with it. It doesn't cause this complication. It's on our end. So think of it like that. It exists on our end. And it, it is very simple, and it is clearly stated right at the beginning of verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of God of the Spirit or the things of the Spirit. It just doesn't accept them. There's the complication right there. So we must ask and answer the question, what is a natural person, right? Because that's the literal language in the original Greek and, of course, a good English rendering here. That's what Paul says, the natural person. I thought we were all natural people. Well, we are technically, but there is somebody. Natural people can, through the work of the Spirit, become not necessarily supernatural, but spiritual people. So what is a natural person? It is a person who has not experienced the supernatural rebirth through the Holy Spirit. They have not been born again. They have not been regenerated. They are still in their fallen state. They are still sinners under the wrath and condemnation of God. They are still in their total and absolute depravity. They are unbelievers is what he's saying. They are not regenerated. They have not been born again. John 3, 3 and 5. Now, why won't, and I want you to notice something. This is important. Look at verse 14 again. The natural person, it does not say cannot accept. It says, does not accept. This is important. This is important. So why won't the natural person accept? Why won't they do it? Why do they not do it? Why won't they accept true wisdom? Well, it's because he or she, they will not do it because they are, as I just stated, still in their original nature. They are still spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. They have not, and literally cannot, but on their end, it is a won't, God sees it as both, cannot and will not, but God judges based on the will not and will never not. And what they will never do in their natural state is put on the new nature, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3.10. So to the natural person or unbeliever, true wisdom and the, any other thing of the Spirit of God, they are essentially off limits in a way, but it's by their own depravity, and they are ultimately the word he uses, folly, which can be rendered as stupid or nonsense. Uh, the Greek word for folly is moriah. It is used to describe the content of foolish thought. So the way the 
unbeliever, the unregenerate, the natural man sees the word of God. It is a body of content that is just plain stupid and foolish. This is the way they view it. I can 100% affirm this. It's in scripture. You don't need my affirmation. That is my precise opinion prior to being regenerated. These people are stupid. What he's saying is stupid from the pulpit. I don't get any of this. I, we're wasting our time. How much longer is this going on? This is ridiculous. It was what was being said and what was being saying was utter and absolute foolishness to me when I was natural, merely natural. And this is precisely how the natural person sees the things of God, especially Christ crucified. We must understand that there isn't an inkling of real genuine interest in them toward the things of God. Well, what about seekers? Okay, let me, let me just clarify for you. There's one seeker, and his name is the Holy Spirit. Okay? He is the Holy Spirit. He is the seeker. If there is any man or woman who is vaguely interested in the things of God, it's because the true seeker is probably seeking them out. But no one seeks on their own. Never. Never. And I can affirm this. I can testify this based on my own experience. The Word of God says it. That's the authority. Secondarily to that, this is exactly how I was. Maybe some of you in this room can testify to that yourself. When you were natural, outside of the body of Christ, outside of Christ, did you have any interest in the things of God? No. No, you didn't. I had interest in, in, in women and carousing and drugs and making myself feel good. And it just, it just wasn't there. It was not there. And the things of God... Like the Bible was a body of content that I deemed foolish and stupid. Why would I put myself before that? Now, I remember there were a few times in my life where I, I, I entered into some difficult seasons prior to being saved, and I would sometimes read the Bible, and somebody told me to read Revelation. <laughs> How about John or maybe even James, you know, and I'm sitting here reading this, and it's like I'm reading the Da Vinci Code. I have no idea what this is. I mean, it's like, and then the, the, the lamb, and I'm just like, man, I'm more lost after reading this than anything else. Now, that's not to say there isn't power in Revelation. God could raise me to life right there. But um, it just didn't make sense. And I don't even remember who that was, but I need to find them and tell them, John, 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 give him John. I did give him John. I gave him Revelation. Not that John. Other John. The gospel. Or James was good. But ultimately, they think it's stupid. I thought it was stupid. Remember what Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians 1.18a? What did he say? For the word of the cross is, same word, folly, Moriah, to those who are perishing. So he's already stated this. He's just, he's just restating this to, to, to make his point. It's just folly. The, the natural person is not able, he says, to understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. How can someone who does not have the Spirit understand the things of the Spirit? This is the logic that he's using again, right? I mean, I can't, I, I'm the only one that knows my thoughts. The person I'm talking to doesn't know my thoughts. They can't discern my thoughts. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. How can we comprehend the things of the Spirit that belong to him? apart from the Spirit. This is the logic he's using. It's very sound, isn't it? It's good. Mark Taylor's commentary on verse 14 is just sublime. He says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. How can he? The things of God are foolishness to him. The natural man is the unconverted and unregenerate, the person who is void of the Spirit and who belongs to this age. 
The absence of the Spirit renders the natural man unable to know the things of the Spirit of God, since the Spirit is the one who searches the deep things of God. The natural man is unable to penetrate spiritual things because spiritual things are evaluated spiritually. That is, they are examined by means of the Spirit. He says, lastly, the natural man, therefore, is unable to make spiritual judgments or comprehend spiritual truths. Why did I just quote that big paragraph? Because he said it better than I ever could. That is hitting the nail on a thousand heads right there. He has nailed it. Now, when the Holy Spirit quickens the soul and renews the spirit of man through regeneration, or really gives them a new spirit, he then illuminates the man's mind. He opens his mind and, and shines light on it, which makes the truth spiritually discernible. Now that the man has been regenerated and given a new heart, the mind is illuminated. It's like light is shined in the dark place. And now the man can see the word and comprehend the word and understand the word. And from my own personal experience, you don't need it, but that is exactly what happened. I went from this is rubbish to telling Rachel, have you been emailing this Rick guy because he is speaking about me tonight? That is the illumination. All of a sudden, I felt like he, was pre uh, he had an audience of one, me. It was like there was a spotlight that came down out of the ceiling and went right on me. And all of my sins were being revealed. And, and there was a, a crushing sense of that. And then, then I started to hear in the same message about the grace of God. It was amazing. It was almost as if I was the only person in the room. I kept elbowing Rachel. Are you emailing him my life story? Because I will kill you. This is embarrassing, but I also like it, so never mind. Could you shut up so we could listen? This is what she was saying. It was like the spotlight went on, and, and the spirit came into me, and, and, and now it, it, it wasn't foolishness. It made sense, and it was applicable and alive, and I was alive. I was alive, and I'll tell you, from that moment on, my life has never been the same. I didn't walk an aisle. I didn't pray a prayer, the bouncing ball prayer, prayer, God, come into my heart. I didn't do any of that. I'm not discounting that if you did that, if you did it at a crusade. Fine. Praise God. God can work through that too, but I think so often he doesn't, but he can. But for me, a rebel in the seat transformed into a saint by the power of God in the Holy Spirit, the light bulb came on. I felt like I was reborn. I don't even think I slept that night. I started reading the Bible. I went to Revelation and go, I know this whole book. I'm dispensational. Basically, ultimately admitting that I didn't know it at all. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I was like, I'm a dispensational. Hey, watch Left Behind. Oh, that was not good for me. Yeah. Why did we start me off with that? Right? But I'm, I'm kidding about that. But it just, it was just, I was just different. I was just different. This is the Spirit of God making himself known to me, making God known to me, making spiritual truth discernible, comprehensible, understandable, applicable. He is the communicator of true wisdom. Amen. He is the one that does it. He quickens the soul. And, and in that moment, this man who, who is, maybe thinks it's rubbish for one moment, and then all of a sudden he's, he's made alive and he doesn't see it as rubbish anymore. You know, it's in that moment that he transitions from being a merely natural man to a spiritual man. 
The truly spiritual person isn't someone who's into religion, isn't into someone who follows the commandments perfectly, isn't someone who travels the world to find their inner self or their inner peace. That's not a spiritual person. That is a person who thinks that their behavior and actions are right to them, but in the end they lead to death. The truly spiritual person is the person who has the Holy Spirit and who now has spiritual discernment because of that work and presence of the Spirit in them. That man has become a truly spiritual man. And the funny thing is, is that he won't go around telling people that. Only lost spiritual people go around telling everyone they're spiritual. Spiritual men just live a spiritual life following and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual women do that too. They don't go around going, by the way, I'm spiritual. You tell me that, I'm praying for you right there. I don't think this person knows Jesus because truly spiritual people don't boast about being spiritual. They boast about the Holy Spirit that raised them to life. That's what they boast about. They boast in Christ alone. Amen? He is a truly spiritual person. He is possessed by the Holy Spirit who does what? What is one of those big jobs of the Spirit? Yes, it's to empower us so that we can live a life worthy of our high calling, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but, or that's actually a, a Ephesians 4, 1. It is so that he can live out and apply the spiritual truths. Uh, but ultimately, he is in that moment becoming a, he has become a new creation. He's illuminated. He's all of this. But it is there so that the Spirit can. And the Spirit is there, regenerating, done this work, illuminating, so that he can impart all truth to that man, making him equipped for every good work. I love when Jesus was praying with his disciples and discussing, you know, I'm going to send you a helper in the high priestly prayer. And he says, and he will lead you into all truth. And he will call to memory the things that I taught you. Because those guys had already forgotten many of the things they were taught. It is the spirit that reminds us. It is the spirit that leads us into a fuller understanding and discernment of the truth. But apart from him, it's just not happening. We can now live a life worthy of the calling that has been placed on us, Ephesians 4.1, because we have the Spirit and we can understand the truth as he unfolds it for us. The cross is no longer perceived as folly to this man. He now sees it as the power of God unto salvation, which is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 18b. In the next line, Paul describes the broader spiritual abilities of the truly spiritual person, Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself not to be judged. Uh, he is to be judged by no one, he says. This is an interesting verse. It almost seems out of place, but it makes total sense once we grasp it. The spiritual person, the true believer, is able to judge all things. Now, this does not mean that spiritual people, believers, are to go around rendering all sorts of judgments on unbelievers in particular or believers. That's not at all what it means. Don't think of that as an invitation to go treat people badly. That's not what it is. It is Christ's job to never treat anyone badly. Don't get me wrong, but it is Christ's job to judge. It is his job. We don't go around determining who's going to hell and who isn't. We can get a sense of where someone's headed. We preach the gospel as an antidote to that. But we don't go around saying, well, I know he's going to hell. Oprah's going to hell. You don't know if Oprah's going to hell. She's still breathing. She can be saved. So we, we don't make those kinds of judgments. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ and when he returns in marvelous, matchless glory with his angels, he will render divine judgment unlike anything the world has ever seen. It's his job, Matthew 28, 18, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. 
What it means is that we don't go around judging. It means that the spiritual person has the ability to judge if something is or is not of the spirit. Okay? They have, as I've already said several times, spiritual discernment. They can tell the difference between things like biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom. They can hear an example of biblical wisdom and say, that's sound, that's good, that's in scripture. And then when they can hear men prattle on about some worldly nonsense that they think is wise, they can say, no. Well, maybe they wouldn't say it like that to them. I probably wouldn't get myself in trouble. But they're thinking, uh-uh. That's not biblical wisdom. They can tell the difference. They can tell the difference between the gospel, the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. They can tell the difference between that and false gospels. And right now you're saying, gosh, there are so many people who profess Christ who are in churches that teach false gospels. What's their problem? They don't have the spirit. It's just that simple. They can tell the difference between the true gospel and false gospels. They can tell the difference between true churches and false churches because there is such a thing as true churches and false churches. True churches teach the word of God. They have the spirit. False churches use this but enter in philosophical ideas and worldly carnal nonsense. The Truly spiritual person has this discernment, can tell the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. And they can also tell the difference, not at the deepest level, but through analyzing behavior, speech, and these sorts of things. They can pretty much tell the difference between believer and unbeliever. They can. Now, they're not to render a you're going to hell judgment, but how else will we know to whom to preach the gospel to. I mean, I, I think we should preach it to everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. But at the same time, when you're listening to somebody talk, you, you have spiritual discernment that can tell you whether they're on the narrow path or the broad road. And it's when they start to integrate into this biblical theology that they claim to have man's ideas and carnal things. And now you're saying, oh, oh no, oh no, 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 no. Oh, you, okay, so, so, so the Father is God, but the Spirit is a mere emanation and Jesus is not God. Okay, we've now departed from Scripture. See, you can tell, and what do we say these days? We want to be so nice and friendly and liked. Well, yeah, I think there's some type of believer. No, they're not. They're not. If they reject the deity of Christ, they're not in our fold, as sad as that is. But that tells me that I must affirm and reaffirm the deity of Christ to them, not from my own opinions, but from the Scripture, which makes that truth so lucidly clear. So we can tell the difference. The truly spiritual person can tell the difference between what is false, spiritually false, and what is spiritually true. Amen? We can do it. And, um, and they can do this because they are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Not just because they're illuminated. They are. But it's because they have the Spirit in them, which is affirming and confirming and revealing what is false. First, John 4, 1. The spiritual person, Paul says, however, is to be judged by no one. No one. This does not mean that unbelievers will not judge believers. Do they not do this all the time? They're always listening to us and railing at us and ranting against us and because our lifestyle doesn't line up with their lifestyle and they hate us for it and we're bigots and homophobes and everything else. Unbelievers are constantly rendering judgments 
against believers, always. So that's not what Paul is saying. They call us unwise. They call us stupid. Our gospel is a body of foolish thought. This is their opinion. doesn't mean that they won't do that. They do it all the time. It means that unbelievers do not have the ability to make right judgments concerning us. They cannot figure us out. Why? Because we are spiritual people. And if, you, if somebody does not have the spirit, how are they going to figure out a spiritual person? You see how it works. This is what Paul is arguing for. They constantly arrive at improper conclusions concerning us because they are natural and can only comprehend natural things. If the natural man cannot discern spiritual truth, how can he discern spiritual people? Right? Again, Paul is using logic. Spiritual truth and spiritual people are both foolishness to the natural men. We're stupid and our gospel is stupid. It's the way they see us. And they might be really nice about it, but in their heart of hearts, that's their true thought. That's what they think. That's exactly what I thought before that night. And I would just simply say this, not to garner some kind of um, sympathy for us. We don't need sympathy. It's a badge of honor for crying out loud. But I would just simply say that Christians are the most misunderstood and misjudged people on the face of the earth. They're supposed to be. Nobody in this world, natural person, is supposed to be able to figure us out. Why? Because we are not from this world. We are aliens and strangers. We ought to appear to them as such. But when we fit in, something is wrong. When they see us, they should say, I don't understand that guy, and therefore I don't like him. We are misunderstood. We are mis judged. Why? Again, what Paul is saying is because natural people cannot grasp who we are, what we are, and they certainly cannot grasp how we became this way through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. These are not things that they can comprehend at the deepest true spiritual level. They just don't get it. I would simply say this, no spirit in them, no comprende. They're not going to get it. No understanding. Therefore, why do we get upset? Why do we get upset with them when they treat us poorly? You are like a Frenchman. Maybe I should get a better example because I'm French. I said that because of me. You are a Frenchman in Mexico. You speak a different language. You carry yourself a different way. Everywhere you go, you have a baguette and a glass of wine. They don't understand you down there. This is a terrible illustration. It's not in the script. This is what happens. But what I'm saying is that you are an alien, you are a stranger, they're not supposed to get you. You tick differently, you operate differently, you think differently. They don't know what you think, but they kind of guess you speak differently. You are a foreigner in a foreign land. You are a kingdom person that belongs to a kingdom that is now not just to come. It is now, it is now, it is now. Remember this. You're not supposed to make sense. Don't get upset when you don't. And heaven forbid, give up the act to be liked. Be okay with being hated and despised. Be okay with being persecuted. Because in that, you are now more like Christ than ever. Amen? This is why Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, to be made more and more and more like Christ. We want so badly to fit in. Why? This world is perishing. It is going to be scorched with fire that's never been seen. Laid bare, made new, a new heavens and a new earth when Christ comes. 
Why are we longing for this fallen world? Why do we want to fit in? It ought to be our task and goal not to fit in, and not through poor behavior, but through godly, righteous, holy behavior. Amen? Amen. I'm so excited about this new women's study coming. They're going to study the Ten Commandments. And it's not like some kind of antinomian spin on it, like, hey, by the way, these don't apply to you. It is going to teach us the mind, or not us, it's going to teach the women. I keep trying to put myself in this study. I gave seven bucks. I got a refund, right? But it's going to teach these gals that, that the Word of God is there for our benefit, that the, the, the commandments are boundaries for our joy. They are. It's not something that we jettison and get rid of. We're just not under its condemnation any longer. And this is going to help our women at this church live a fuller life for Christ and fit in even less because the one thing the world hates are those commandments. It hates them, and they will be judged by it. It's going to be so good. We are misunderstood. They just can't comprehend us. It's really that simple. Last verse. Um, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul cites Isaiah 40, verse 13, using it as a warning to those who judge spiritual people. So he's now saying this to the natural man who likes to make these judgments against us. They're idiots. They're stupid. Their message is dumb. They're out of touch. Wow, I wish they were more worldly. Thank God we're not. He is now correcting or admonishing or warning them. He says, believers have the mind of Christ. How do they have the mind of Christ? They have the mind of Christ in that they believe the word, which is Christ made flesh. They have the mind of Christ in that they live the word, in that they share the word, gossip the word, preach the word, share the gospel, the truths of scripture. When we are aligned with those things, believing the scripture and sharing the scripture, we have the mind and literal heart of Christ. Because what did he do? He came preaching. In fact, he was doing so many miracles in, in I think it was in Capernaum in some place, and he, he left in the middle of the night to go take a break and to pray, and then his disciples finally found him and said, there's more people to go heal. I have not come for that reason. I have come to preach the gospel, and he moves on to another area. Could have healed a whole bunch more people. Instead, he moved on to keep preaching. When we preach the word with boldness, when we share it and gossip it with boldness, we have the mind of Christ. We have the heart of Christ. When non-spiritual people, unbelievers, judge and reject a believer's doctrines, they presume to have a greater understanding than the mind of the Lord, and they are attempting to instruct him. That's what Paul is saying. That's the warning. When they reject our gospel, they're not just merely rejecting our gospel. They are telling God, I have a better way. They are, they are rejecting the mind of the Lord. They are implying that they have a better way. I've got a better gospel than you. They're trying to instruct the Lord himself because the Lord himself is the one who is speaking through us. This is such a critical danger. That's why he's warning. Uh, Hodge said this, what we teach is the mind of the Lord to condemn our doctrine or to judge us as teachers of those you know, lame doctrines is to condemn the Lord. So rejection of the gospel, it cannot be understood as a mere rejection of the gospel. That's typically what we think. You know, we shake the dust off our feet and move on. It is actually an assault on the intelligence of God. It is actually an arrogant attempt by the creature to instruct his or her creator, I have a better way. And as Hodge put it so rightly, it is to condemn the Lord. And what scripture comes to mind now? If you deny me before men, 
I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. What a terrifying thought. They're not just rejecting our gospel. They are telling God, I have a better way. I don't want your way. Now we know and we've learned that true wisdom is not obtained through human discovery, but by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit, primarily to the apostles and those who authored, or at least the human pens behind Scripture. And I would just say that since the Holy Spirit grants believers true wisdom, there is no need for us to look for it elsewhere. We don't have to go down to the Acropolis or to the secular books or any of these things to try to find it. It is revealed through the Spirit as a gift to us from God. We don't have to go anywhere to find it. And I would say this, and this is one of Paul's big points too. He especially made this point at the end of chapter 1. Because it is given by the Spirit, granted by the Spirit, through His power, through His work, through His infinite wisdom and knowledge, there is literally no room for human boasting. We cannot boast about the knowledge, even the biblical knowledge that we have, because we would not have it if it weren't for the Spirit of God. This is a big thing that he's trying to teach them here because they are fascinated by the Acropolis. They're fascinated by the philosophers and all this. They think they have something to add to their faith. They will not add anything to their faith. They will take from it. They will take from it. They are such a danger. And we have no reason to boast. If we boast, we boast in Christ. Our only response to this phenomenal section on true wisdom should be humble gratitude. We are spiritual people, believers, not because we were somehow smarter or more capable than others, but because our merciful God chose to set his salvific love upon us in eternity past, according to his own purposes and for his glory and for ours. We are what we are and we have what we have by sheer grace alone as given through our gracious Holy Spirit, through the whole Godhead. Amen? Amen.